Hey, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of Traffic Jam. My name is Georgia, and I'm here with my co-host, Isabel. Hi, everyone. We are both first-time podcasters. So please bear with us. And we are so excited to get to present Traffic Jam to all of you and get the chance to talk about topics that we have become so passionate about. So when you first hear the name Traffic Jam, you might think this is a podcast to give you some sort of maybe traffic pattern update or to provide raw entertainment while you're on those long work commutes. To help ease that road rage. Listen, we've all been there. We would still love to be playing during those car trips, but we're just a little more than that. On this show, we're going to talk about anything and everything human trafficking and exploitation. Now, this is a heavy and serious subject, so we do intend to keep things light and educational. Isabel and I both work as research analysts for a nonprofit with the goal to fight against human trafficking. We are here to share what we have learned and continue to learn through these discussions. So if this is something you're interested in, please give us a shot and stick around. To introduce ourselves a little, like Georgia said, my name is Isabel, and I'm from the Chicago area. I'm actually finishing up my master's degree from the University of Pittsburgh that I'm doing my last semester remote. And the nonprofit that Georgia mentioned that we both work for is called Moms in Security Global Outreach, which we'll talk more about in a moment. Um, But in my free time, I enjoy knitting socks, uh, hiking, or driving up to the dunes at Lake Michigan. Do you knit anything besides socks or is it just socks? Mostly socks. That's the most difficult thing that I know how to make. She's a woman of many talents, ladies and gentlemen. All right, swinging it back to me. I graduated from Pitt with my master's last spring and I'm a practicing chemist, even though my undergrad degree is in biology. You can call me a nerd or a geek, but I was a college athlete and I still go to the gym. I get out of my house during the weekdays and on the weekends and I hang out with my friends and family. I won't call you a nerd or a geek because I also have a science degree, but mine is a little cooler. It's in psychology. They're counting psychology as a real science these days? (laughs) (laughs) I'm totally kidding. I know that psychologists utilize the scientific method, but it also involves studying people, which is definitely something I don't want to do. Yeah, nine out of 10 days, I tend to like people more than you do. (laughs) That's so true. Okay, let's reel back in. We clearly have different backgrounds, but what brought us together wasn't even our master's program at Pitt. It was this nonprofit that we worked for. We initially met via Zoom when Isabel joined the team, and it was on that call that we learned we were at the same school and we would be taking an in-person class together the following semester. Our grad school was so small. So it's incredible that this was actually the first time we were meeting. But then it was so great because even though the job was remote, we would still meet in person at least once a week to work together. We had our little spot at Bakery Square. I remember actually we had plans to meet up for the first time in person. But the day before that, we actually were both in the student lounge. We both thought that like maybe that was the other person, but we were still wearing masks. So we weren't like totally confident and didn't say anything to each other. I definitely don't miss wearing a mask every day. I don't know about you, but that's just how I feel. So that following day when we met each other, we said, was that you in the lounge? I thought it might be, but I really wasn't sure with the masks and I didn't want to make a fool out of myself. Turns out we were right. 
but now you're back in Chicago and I'm home in NEPA and we still find ways to work together, which is fantastic. Yes. Having the ability to meet over Zoom or FaceTime really makes life easy when we're working from two different states and have completely different life schedules. But doing this kind of work is so fulfilling and really grew into a passion of mine. I will say working at Moms and Security Global Outreach, or MISCO as we call it for short, was really my first experience working in the anti-human trafficking field. I always knew I wanted to work in a sensitive, serious field because I'm a huge true crime fan. I just never thought anti-trafficking would be the area I would become so engulfed in. I was really so blind to the reality that exists around this issue. I got into MISCO through an internship in our grad program, but I really haven't been able to turn back since I did my first piece of research. I really got started in this field doing volunteer work as a medical advocate for a rape crisis center. And this experience led me to want to get my master's in human security. And when I moved to Pittsburgh for school, I was looking for ways to continue staying involved in this work. So through researching for like two months, I heard about Alisa, one of the founders of MISCO, and how she was open to bringing on another researcher to join you. Here we are a year and a half later doing a podcast together. I know it seems so crazy and like nothing I would have ever pictured, but I am glad I kept myself open to different opportunities. I'm glad we both kept our minds open to joining MISCO because it led us here. Even though I do miss sitting at the Starbucks and Bakery Square once a week to have our working sessions, I'm grateful we continue to work together and basically bring those sessions back to life through this podcast. Do you want to introduce MISCO since we keep mentioning it? Yes. So Moms in Security was started by four moms who all worked in the security field and saw the danger of exploitation posed to children, especially through technology. Therefore, they decided to take action and start a nonprofit organization called Moms in Security Global Outreach. Our mission here focuses its efforts on fundraising and awareness for victims of human trafficking and child exploitation. Our goal is to be a liaison between the security industry, law enforcement, and the public and private organizations to create actionable solutions in the fight against human trafficking. As part of that mission, we help gather technology through donations or fundraising to then donate to law enforcement agencies with anti-human trafficking units to assist in their investigations. We also focus on education and outreach. So we have MISCO chapters on college campuses. Isabel and I started the first one at the University of Pittsburgh. We run a blog and we are in the process of developing training and so much more. I think something that is really important about MISCO and its mission is that with all the different organizations, both private sector and public sector, working to fight human trafficking, MISCO really tries to bring them together and help coordinate efforts to help organizations further their operations through its security-focused lens. And that increase in communication across organizations is something that has definitely been needed. And then adding in the education component is crucial to get more of the public involved in being aware of and discussing this prevalent issue that also occurs here in the U.S. With the MISCO chapter, we have been able to coordinate with the Diversity and Inclusion Office at our school, as well as with organizations that focus on issues such as domestic violence and homelessness. And tying together our two missions, and we're building some very neat connections and outreach opportunities. That's so great to hear, especially considering the chapter's only been operating for one school year. I think one thing I would add about MISCO is how it was founded by four moms working in the security field. 
when you think about security, you think about a completely male dominated field. And then when you think about human trafficking, you're definitely not going to picture four moms as the face of an organization. They noticed this need to protect children and took that passion to start an organization dedicated to their protection, as well as anyone impacted by human trafficking. And the organization is spread beyond these four moms. It's everyone, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, you get the point. Everyone needs to be included in this fight. To keep up with the work that Moms in Security is doing, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll put those handles in the episode description for all of you. You can also message us through our social media platforms to interact with our podcast episodes, to share your thoughts, comments, and questions. As we gain listeners, we really want to interact with you more through our social media accounts. We want to start highlighting a listener's message every week and discussing it on our show. We are also going to do our due diligence in taking content suggestions from you. Let us know what topics within human trafficking and exploitation you want to know more about. Yes, everyone, please, please, please slide into the DMs, swipe up on our stories, shoot us a private message. Anything to let us know what your thoughts are or what you want to know about. I want to give a quick shout out to my cousin Marlena for the name idea of Traffic Jam. This podcast has been in the works for about five months, probably six, maybe six and a half by the time we actually drop the first episode. So it's truly a labor of love. The reason we decided to go with Traffic Jam was that we found it a clever play on words. So traffic is not spelled like car traffic, but like human trafficking. T R A. F-F-I-C-K. Second, with the prevalence of human trafficking, it really does disrupt so many people's lives and causes this jam for anybody in the situation. Additionally, traffic jams are not unique to any one region and can happen anywhere at any given time. Unfortunately, there are also so many factors that cause a jam in ending trafficking as well. For instance, social media usage amongst children and the lack of regulations, the sexualization of children, the lack of education around trafficking in general, and the way that predators are able to exploit financial situations, insecurities, and vulnerabilities. We have a lot of topics lined up that we are super excited to talk about. I know when you hear the word exploitation, it can be a heavy topic. maybe awkward and uncomfortable as you think about all the things that it encompasses. Intimate partner violence, Romeo scams, sexualization of children, and human trafficking. But bringing out uncomfortable conversations is one of the most important steps in moving towards solutions that can make a bigger change. In this podcast, we intend to speak up and speak out to educate everyone, including ourselves, on the topics that may seem uncomfortable. We will find effective ways to have these conversations respectfully and with our own personal touch. We won't always be, you know, doom and gloom. So please give us a try and tell your friends. This will be the podcast to give you the insights and information you need to have about exploitation. With all of that being said, let's get into our main topic of human trafficking. So there are a lot of definitions of human trafficking, but one that encompasses the core components is that human trafficking occurs when the use of force, fraud, or coercion obtains a person to be used for labor or to perform sexual acts. I think most people, when thinking of human trafficking, you know, they think of kidnapping, locked up, the chains, the young girls being sold for sex. All of that, 
plus foreign countries. Yes, the perception, you know, is that human trafficking happens in other countries, but not in the U.S. But human trafficking does occur all over the U.S. At Polaris Project, they actually broke down some of the most common types of human trafficking found in the U.S. And I think these are really helpful in breaking down the different ways that human trafficking can be found. So, you know, for example, the first one is Romeo pimps or boyfriending. This can obviously look, you know, slightly different. But an example of what this could look like is, say, a young woman meeting a man who she falls in love with. He is everything that she ever wanted. He supports her, you know, buys her gifts, showers her with love. Sounds pretty good to me. But eventually, as he, you know, gains her trust, he will take her to parties and tell her, you know, be nice to my friends to earn gifts like jewelry. He makes it seem like it's no big deal at first, but then it becomes more frequent and he starts demanding more sexual actions from her. And he keeps all the money that she earns, you know, and says he's saving up for a house for them. He might even occasionally hit her to make her understand like how much he needs her to contribute and says that if she stops, he's going to stop loving her. Okay, I take that back. That's a dream turned into a nightmare. I think one of the Polaris Project stats that I found the most shocking was that familial trafficking was second on that list. So as that name suggests, this is when a family member, mother, father, uncle recruits another family member to be trafficked. So an example of this is a mom who survived sexual abuse and was a prostitute for many years. She's struggling to support her children, and then men start expressing interest in one of her kids. Then she tells her child, it's time to contribute to the household, and she takes her out on the street. In this situation, the child loves her mother, and there's no other means of support, so she feels like she has to do this for her family. This one is definitely hard to imagine, but I could see the ways that familial trafficking would allow a trafficker to build trust and like gain that control over that person. Another one that is very prevalent is online trolling. This could be, you know, a lonely, insecure teenager who poses and posts pictures of herself on social media to gain like validation. You know, someone poses as a modeling agent and sends her a plane ticket to come to his studio. And when she gets there, he takes her out to these different business meetings and tells her, you know, she needs to be nice to some people. And in this situation, the teen is trapped because she didn't tell her parents she was leaving. She has no money and might even feel shame that, you know, she was tricked and fell into this. He tells her that, you know, she needs to make a good impression and that with time she could land that modeling job. In today's world of heavy social media use on TikTok and Instagram, I could definitely see how easily minors can be targeted online. Speaking of minors, great segue. A really interesting documentary is called Children for Sale by the CNN Freedom Project. This documentary really paints a picture of human trafficking in the United States. Side note, I know we're giving a lot of non-stereotypical examples, so we're going to link the Polaris Project page with these examples if you want to read more. So where would you say that a lot of these, you know, more common stereotype perceptions of human trafficking, you know, like being a female, the chains, the kidnapping came from? Well, I do think that stereotypes exist for a reason, but these stereotypes often do so much more damage than good. 
yes, these stereotype situations arise, but there are so, so many other ways in which people become exploited. I think a lot of the harmful stereotypes really started under the context of international treaties. It wasn't until the 1920s, 1930s that boys under 21 were even considered to be able to be victims of human trafficking. Yes, sex trafficking largely happened to women and girls, but labor trafficking was largely impacting men and boys, and they were also facing sex trafficking. Eventually, gender-neutral language around trafficking was implemented in the late 1940s, which allowed for some male victim recognition. But male victims were not specifically addressed until, like, 2011. Part of the increase in male victim recognition probably had to do with broadening the understanding of human trafficking from just sexual exploitation to include labor trafficking, which predominantly impacts males. But this helped people start to see the ways in which men were being exploited and opened perceptions to start to accept male victimization as something that was occurring, um, including around sexual exploitation. Right. And then the media and movies also contribute to modern perceptions of human trafficking. Like sometimes they tend to beat around the bush and reduce the experience of suffrage by the person trafficked. Or they might develop these overly dramatic stories to engage an audience and really seek that shock factor. And they exaggerate a survivor story while downplaying other important aspects. And people you know, who are being trafficked sometimes don't realize that they're being trafficked because their situation looks so different from what is normally represented. I've also heard, you know, inaccurate terminology used by the media. So one that I've seen is underage prostitute. But when you refer to a child sex trafficking victim as an underage prostitute, you lose the roles of coercion, of grooming and abuse of the child. I know you've really gotten into terminology. When we were planning this episode, you were talking about terms used for people who are no longer in their trafficking situations or for people who were sexually assaulted. Do you want to go into that? Yes, I really like talking about this. So there are several different terms that people use to describe people who have been trafficked. The three most popular that I've seen are victim, survivor, and person with lived experience. So I've heard victim and survivor, but person with lived experience is definitely not as common. The term victim is used a lot by law enforcement agencies as the term for someone who has had a crime committed against them. But many advocacy agencies and some specialized law enforcement agencies try to avoid using this term because of the sense of disempowerment. Instead, they move to the term survivor to describe people who have gotten out of their trafficking situation or who were sexually assaulted. This term is especially used when they're actually interacting and engaging with that person because of its more empowering nature. Now, the criticism is that the term survivor really reduces the continued suffrage or challenges that a survivor will continue to face after that situation has occurred. So another term that has Uh, more recently become common is person with lived experience. It provides empowerment without leading the experience to be described as completed or completely overcome. And it acknowledges the hardship that will continue to be experienced. I think that distinction among those terms is really important. I mean, it really does seem so small, but the words we use 
influence our perception and understanding. So I could see the term survivor almost impacting the amount of follow-up care a person who was trafficked receives, like how much attention is paid to the continued care and the type of continued care that may be needed or desired. I completely agree with that. So earlier you mentioned something interesting about victim perception. Can you explain the idea of an acceptable victim a little more? Like who is potentially more accepted as a victim by society as compared to someone who we might not initially expect or accept to be a victim? Yes. So when you hear the word victim, especially in the context of sexual violence, there is this common perception of what that person should look like. When surveyed, the first thing that a lot of people will say is that, you know, they imagine young females, you know, especially a child, someone of small stature, easily able to be overpowered, visibly sad, like crying or scared, someone with physical marks to show that they were overpowered, you know, because that person was fighting back and saying no. That's like the typical person that people will believe to be a victim. So if someone does not fit in that description, the general public might be less likely to believe their story. They might ask questions like, you know, did you fight hard enough? I actually got to hear a professor from the University of Stockholm speak on human trafficking, and she talked about the hierarchy of a victim. So imagine a triangle, and at the very top, you have children, the most likely to be accepted as a victim. And in the middle are women, And at the very bottom are men. This is really interesting because I feel like people respond to trauma differently. So you mentioned someone who is visibly sad and they're crying, but some people might be more stoic. Or you mentioned men are less likely to be perceived as victims because it's harder to imagine them being victims of sexual violence or trafficking and being coerced or forced in that manner. And because of that, it's led us to forget about a lot of people who should be included in this discussion on human trafficking. Right. And so one of the ways to help in the fight against human trafficking is educating on the topic, letting people know what to look out for and how far reaching it is and how many people it affects. I actually have some quick facts here that I think are important to leave our audience with before we move to the next segment. So human trafficking is the fastest growing illegal business. It generates $150 billion annually and is currently the second largest criminal enterprise in the world. Almost 25 million people are trafficked every year. One in four victims are under the age of 18. The majority of victims are trafficked within the borders of their own country. And the top country of origin of trafficking victims identified in the U.S. is in the United States. So... I want to get your perspective on something that I've been thinking about lately. Okay. There seems to be this dynamic where society has prioritized making sure that young girls know how to stay safe. They're taught from a young age to be careful. They're taught never to go to the bathroom alone. Always have a buddy. You never walk home alone at night. There are self-defense classes like for women specifically. And these are all important things, and it's important for people to learn how to prevent possible bad situations, you know, or how to defend themselves. But if a woman is then assaulted, a lot of the times they receive partial blame, like they must have done something wrong first to end up in that situation. 
like, well, you know, she walked home alone at night and she should have known better. Or maybe she didn't fight him off hard enough. And so there is this lack of balance almost between making sure that, you know, girls and women know what to look out for and how to keep themselves safe. And then victim blaming if someone does get assaulted. I want to go ahead and explain victim blaming really quick in case anybody hasn't heard the term before. But victim blaming occurs when the victim of a crime or any wrongful act is held entirely or partially at fault for the harm that befell them. Yeah, so I was raised in a small town area where you can't really get anywhere without a car. Like there's no sidewalks by my house. So it wasn't until I was old enough to get dropped off at the mall or the movies with my friend that I was told a lot of the things you already touched on. Don't go anywhere alone. Always be watching out for yourself and your friends. If you are alone, don't walk around with your nose in your phone. And then when I eventually did start driving, I heard the classic, you know, hold your keys between your fingers in case you need to jab somebody. And then I got my own keychain friendly canister of pepper spray. Oh, yeah, I forgot about the keys one. That one was always my mom's favorite. I think every parent has their favorite one. So I've seen videos surface lately on social media of how young women may be targeted while they are out alone. A perpetrator may see a girl driving herself to a mall or a Target. What a stereotype. Target and Starbies. (laughs) So they wait until she goes into Target to get her Starbies and shop around. While she's inside, they mark her car by putting something on it, on the windshield, the door handle, or they'll block it with a shopping cart. And the whole motive of this is to basically distract the girl from getting into her car, and then they grab her while she's inspecting whatever's going on. This just goes back to the idea that we're always prepping girls to be alert and how not to be a victim of a crime. I do think that this is super important, but it can also instill that victim mentality in our own heads which can lead to some people not even wanting to leave their house alone, even if it's just to go get groceries and Starbies by themselves. My family's favorite thing to say now is, you know, you can't go anywhere because have you not seen Criminal Minds? There needs to be a better balance when we ensure girls are aware and prepared in case a situation were to occur, but a balance that empowers them to be confident and secure in themselves and not afraid of the world. Because there are so many situations where, you know, those self-defense classes or those safety tips have been very beneficial for girls having to fight off a perpetrator. So this is not something that we would want to give up by any means. You know, being prepared is obviously super important and very empowering. So then where society needs to change is how it responds when a female is assaulted. That initial response should not be to ask how hard she fought or how many times she said no or what she was wearing or if she was under the influence. The details are important, especially to any potential investigations, but we need to make sure there's no judgment and that there's just full support. I know you have a list of different safety devices for females. Do you want to go ahead and share some amazing gadgets that capitalism has brought us? Absolutely. Capitalism really popped off with some of these ideas. There has become a market for what are called date rape devices. So these are marketed towards women to have on themselves when they go out on dates or out with their friends. I have a personal love-hate relationship with this market because I love the idea of having discreet protection, but I also hate that I'm expected to carry around a knife disguised as a lipstick because I'm a girl who needs that protection. I do give credit to the creative minds that are out there, 
Real quick, I'm going to pull up my screen as I go through these and show you the devices I found. Are you ready? Yes. For anybody listening, if you want to see these devices, check out our Instagram reel. Okay, first up, I found a portable drink spiking test that you put on your keychain or in your pocket to check your drink for drugs when you're out at a bar or a club, and you just get a weird feeling in your stomach and want to make sure your drink is safe before you take your next sip. Yes, we can just go buy a new one, but nobody really wants to be throwing away half of the $15 mixed drink in your hand. Oh, okay. So it literally looks like a key fob that you like hang on your keychain. Okay, so then there's some writing on it. How how does the actual test work? I am introducing the SIP chip. We're not sponsored by any of these devices. But that circle in the middle of the key fob is the drink test itself. According to their site, all you need to do is add a drop of your drink to the section labeled liquid, and you'll see one of two things happen. Either two lines appear and the drink is free from testable drugs, or one line appears indicating your drink has been spiked with date rape drugs. That's when you throw out your $15 vodka crayon, you go on over to the bar, and you get a fresh one. This is nice because, you know, it provides that safety net but it doesn't really seem to like prevent anything from initially happening. Well, okay, I could see one of two things happening. First, someone who has this device is already very cognizant to the potential danger when they go out, you know, meaning that the opportunity might not be very high for someone to try and drug their drink because they are super aware. Or, you know, you have this and treat it as a safety net, and maybe you're a little bit more careful making them, you know, like a more easy target. So what's your overall reaction? So I like the idea and it can help bring power back to a targeted person, but I would want something that was a little bit more preventative. Okay, that's fair. Another device I think you're going to like more is called the nightcap. This is a scrunchie that transforms into a drink cover with a hole for straw access. This is a really simple idea, but probably the easiest like preventative mechanism to carry. Like I literally have a scrunchie on my wrist right now. So do I. So it would definitely be something I can always, you know, like have on my wrist or in my hair. And see, this one is more preventative because, you know, someone would not be able to access the drink easily. And there is a very visible sign that somebody is cognizant. I think that in and of itself is very preventative. So I like the design of this one a bit more. All right. So we're going to move to the more ridiculous side of the aisle. I found this insertable device that's supposed to trap anything that enters the female body called the rape axe. So I want to start with asking you, what do you think when you hear the term rape axe? Like, some kind of like sharp blade you're on the right path um it's basically a female condom with teeth on the inside here's the picture no way look at those spikes okay here's my thing people do what they you know want to help keep themselves you know safe but this is definitely a more intrusive option also like it is kind of preventative in the fact that like it will stop the act from continuing to happen but also 
not because things have to get that far for that like painful consequence. Like, can people actually buy this? So this one's not actually on the market as far as I can tell. It's just a design that's being tested, but they are seeking funding to get up and running. Okay, so then hypothetically, like what would happen if this ever needed to be used? So if a female is wearing this out and she becomes attacked, the rape acts basically acts like a Chinese finger trap with teeth. So you remember those toys, the Chinese finger traps that you would put your fingers in both ends and when you would try to pull your fingers out, it would just get tighter. Yes. I believe that's the concept of this. So when you try to pull anything out, those sharp barbs inside of it latch on and they make it harder to get out. So you have to get this removed by a doctor. It's not easy to cut and you just have to be super careful and you can't just pull it off. That is interesting because unless someone like found a way to remove it themselves, they would have to turn themselves into somebody. Like whether it's, you know, at a hospital or to a family member or a friend for help. So like theoretically, it could help catch perpetrators and prevent them from continuing to offend. Can you imagine being at the hospital and seeing somebody walk in with a situation? That would be traumatizing. 100%. So at the end of every episode, we want to go ahead and address a commonly believed myth about human trafficking and exploitation or answer like a listener question. Today's myth that is commonly believed is that victims and traffickers are usually strangers. I think a common perception of human trafficking is this, you know, dramatic kidnapping or luring children into vans and situations like this do absolutely happen. But based on available data, Research estimates that at least 60% of trafficking victims are familiar with their trafficker. A trafficker could be a family friend, a significant other, or a close relative. And one of the reasons for this is that familiarity helps breed trust. And so it makes it easier to coerce victims into forced labor or sex. Can we take a second to digest the fact that you said 60% of victims? That's more than half. So more than half of trafficking victims know their trafficker. This is super unsettling, but it makes sense. The best mechanism for traffickers to coerce the victims into forced sex or labor is to build a relationship with them and be able to manipulate that relationship. The victims almost become blinded to the reality that their trafficker is someone they thought they could trust. Manipulation can be so powerful and can be concealed until it's too late. Thank you so much for addressing that first myth. I'm excited to keep doing this and rolling out more episodes. If you made it this far, thank you so much for hanging around. And be sure to subscribe to Traffic Jam on Spotify, Apple Music, or Google Podcasts. Stay tuned as we continue to release new episodes every other Monday. And everyone, be sure to stay curious. Stay curious.